The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Our gospel text this evening is sort of like a Wikipedia page, but infinitely more reliable, okay? I realized when I got in the middle of that analogy, it's maybe not, maybe misdirection there. But it's like a Wikipedia page because nearly every word of it would be, would be like a link to another page. If this were a modern text, it would just be, you could push down on your phone and you could just get scatter shots of more and more information as Mark is doing his work writing out his gospel account of Jesus. Here at the very beginning, St. Mark is grounding the story of Jesus in the scriptures of Israel. And he's grounding the story of Jesus in the story of God's work in Israel and through them to the world. I mean, talk about meta. Shia LaBeouf and James Franco have nothing on the gospel writers. These men were living out the story of Israel as just everyday Jewish men. And along comes Jesus and recapitulates the whole thing, recasting it in a new light, and then they write that down with themselves as part of the story. And the story of Israel that these early followers of Christ were deeply a part of is a heartbreaking love story. The protagonist is this patient, caring, providing, loving person. But in response to the care and love of the protagonist, the ingenue shows herself to be a bitter, complaining, faithless bride. And when she realizes that these others that she has left her beloved for don't actually care for her, that they want only to use and abuse her, she returns. And of course, this great one whose name is love takes her back and restores her. But if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that this cycle keeps happening, and it keeps worsening over and over, and the level of her self-destruction would be maddening if it weren't so sad. She leaves the home of her beloved to go and prostitute herself to any who walk by, and of course, they all mistreat her horribly. 
What's interesting, as this story gets retold a million different ways in a thousand different cultures, all echo of this one true love story, is that in this real version of Christian Scripture, God is not some weak-willed cuckold who has been manipulated by a sinister woman and her cronies, right? That's often how this story sort of gets played out in popular culture. But in the Christian story, God is rather strength and pure goodness. He is the source and fountain of all beauty and joy. He is the very essence of love. You would think, after so much betrayal and blasphemy, that he would burn the whole thing to the ground, leaving the bride with nothing to come back to, he himself riding off into the sunset, never to look back. But his goodness runs so much deeper than any human character, and instead of the burning venom of the jilted that we would expect to hear, we instead are met with the words of Isaiah 40. Comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This voice of comfort, this word of tenderness, is in ways that we will never be able to fully grasp the word, capital W, Jesus himself. He is the tender word, the word of comfort. And so St. Mark begins his telling of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. All of those words have their own hyperlinks, right? Jesus, Yahweh saves, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who has been anointed by God, the spirit-filled man who is also God the Son. But Mark begins his telling of this good news with John the Baptist, the messenger who runs ahead to make preparation, the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. John appears in the wilderness. Don't you like how Mark phrases that for us? He appears in the wilderness. But he appears in the wilderness because the people of Israel need to come back to the wilderness and re-enter the promised land through the narrow gate of repentance and baptism. And this is where, if we were some of Mark's original hearers, I I think our, our sort of hyperlink brain would be going off here because the wilderness is a complex place in Scripture. It's a place that sort of images for us the wildness of sin, the unpredictability of its consequences. It's a place of deprivation and loneliness, and it's the soundstage of Israel's testing and failure over and over and over and over again. But it's also the place where God has betrothed himself to Israel, where he has come down to her like a bridegroom and made her his own. It's the place where he has committed himself in love to her, provided for her, and protected her. The sojourn in the wilderness is a painful part of Israel's history, but it's not painful because God is any way lacking in goodness. Rather, it's painful because of Israel's constant grumbling and disbelief that God is really good. When they finally enter the land of promise, if you can think back, They do so through what? Through a type of baptism. Through crossing through the River Jordan untouched by the chaos of the waters of judgment. They're not swept away. They're brought into life. In the intervening centuries between when the people originally entered the land of promise and here, when Mark begins his gospel, the people have been kicked out of the land and eventually they're allowed to return, but they remained under foreign rule. 
The exile they had experienced physically, geographically, was still being experienced spiritually and emotionally and politically. And here comes John the Baptist, and he is, in effect, telling the people who have long since returned and rebuilt Jerusalem that they must re-enter as their forebears did the first time. They must come out and meet God in the wilderness and pass through the waters of the Jordan, through the waters of baptism. And here is John, another hyperlink. He's dressed like Elijah. He's hearkening back to the old prophets of Israel who stood outside the religious and social power structures to speak a word from the Lord. John is eating locust, link, a symbol of judgment, and honey, link, a symbol of blessing. It's almost as if he is in his own body bridging the old covenant and the new. The place where God's judgment turns into a place of blessing, all that is embodied not truly in John, but actually in his cousin Christ. And John's message is very straightforward. The call for baptism and repentance is being issued because, as he says, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As a friend pointed out to me, this is the gospel in miniature. This little summary of John's preaching. Jesus is so much greater, so much more powerful than any of the most powerful religious leaders in our world. And it is to him that the greatest of those leaders always point, right? Jesus says about John, there is no one greater born of women. Why? because John pointed definitively to Christ. John's greatness is found in his humility, in his ability to see the infinitely surpassing greatness of Jesus. To untie the sandals of another is the job reserved for the most menial of servants. It is utter degradation, and yet John says that he would be unworthy of such an act of service toward Christ. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John predicts that Jesus will do for his people, it's to be immersed in the divine life. It's to be brought in in a real participation in God's life, to have our life rooted in Christ. It's to be born again. Don't, don't let our culture turn that into a stupid, terrible word. It's to be born again from above from on high, by water and the Spirit. John can call on the people of Jerusalem to re-enter the promised land in a more fitting way, but Jesus himself becomes the way of entry into the true promised land that Palestine represents, right? It's the land of God the Father. Jesus himself is that way because he baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit, immersing them in his life. Last week, as we entered the Advent season, which is a season of anticipation and preparation, that's why we say the entire Decalogue rather than the summary of the law, to remind ourselves of what needs to be done within us as we prepare for Christ's arrival. And last week, as we began this season, we did so with the command of Christ ringing in our ears as he said it over and over and over again, stay awake. Stay alert 
And tonight, we hear the voice of one calling in the wilderness, and it is a voice that speaks comfort. Comfort. It's a word of tenderness. It's a voice calling to us that God has come to visit his people, but not as a standoffish, angry God. No, he, he comes as a shepherd. And he tends his flock and gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. Last week I encouraged you that to stay awake is to stay in prayer. And I encourage you to use this season of Advent to, to build habits of silence and prayer in the midst of a very busy season, to not allow yourself to be lulled to sleep by ceaseless distractions. This image of lambs being carried by a strong, gentle shepherd keeps this call to silent contemplation, to a listening prayer in our minds. It's the same call. If you're anything like me, then many of us spend our days fighting and striving and straining to accomplish and achieve. And in that mindset, prayer only makes sense if it facilitates more achievement, if there's some sort of payoff immediately. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. But to truly be in prayer is to be carried along in the arms of the Good Shepherd. Prayer is not something that you initiate. God has been speaking to you every day of your life. To truly pray is to, be, to find yourself being carried along in the arms of the Good Shepherd. It's to stop kicking against him and instead turn our heads to his chest and listen to the sound of his heart. Prayer, as such, is not so much a thing that we accomplish, but a space that is made to allow us to realize that God sees us. God sees you. He knows you. He understands you in a way that you can never understand yourself. All those feelings of conflict and war that you have within yourself, he sees all of it. And he understands all of it. And he loves you more than you could ever realize. I encourage you this week, if you haven't already, start to begin to make space in your life for silence and prayer, not as another way to condemn yourself for failing to do something, or to buoy your sense of self-righteousness, but simply as a way of, of creating space to realize that God is already speaking to you. He's already calling you. And the words that he is calling to you are comfort, comfort. It's a word of peace and tenderness, for it is Christ himself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.